His real goal was to provide an anti-suicide message to people saying, you know, he, he said, look, most of you want to kill yourself just because of what's happening up here in your head. And he said, everything that I was suffering in my head and my body and I made it, you can make it. Which is true, right? It's so weird because don't you find that, uh, I don't know what you've, what you've discovered in this space, but like whenever you feel that you're having a tough day, <laughs> okay, there's, some t- there's two guys sitting in a boat somewhere at drifting at sea. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're worlds apart. You know what I mean? It's worlds apart. How's it, guys? Welcome back to another cracking installment of the Map Brown Show. And I have a question for you. Can you imagine what it would be like to spend 438 days alone in a small fishing boat at sea? How would you survive? Would you survive? And that is indeed the story that we are going to cover today with our guest, Jonathan Franklin, the author of numerous books, in fact, one of those books being 438 Days, An Extraordinary True Story of Survival at Sea. His other book includes The 33, which covers the survival story of the 33 Chilean miners who were caught down in a remote copper mine in the Atacama Desert. So Jonathan has got a unique perspective really on survival and the power of the human spirit to endure. 438 Days has been called the greatest survival book in the last decade by Outsiders Magazine. And this is a true story. And that's what makes this an incredibly unique episode full of perspective. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. Jonathan Franklin, welcome to the Map Round Show. Thank you very much. So Jonathan, uh, you have quite an extraordinary story, right? 438 days, uh, pretty much where it's been um, you at sea for 438 days, a fishing trip, an idle fishing trip gone wrong. Um, and so uh, this book of yours has been uh, described as the best survival book in a decade uh, by Outside, Outside Magazine. And this really is an incredibly inspiring story. So thank you for making the time to, uh, to be with us today. You're, you're welcome. Yeah, it's a, as a journalist, you only get these kind of stories probably once in a career. I know, right? I mean, you wouldn't want this to happen twice. <laughs> uh, so, so guys, we are live broadcasting uh, on Twitter, YouTube, Facebook, and uh, and LinkedIn. So if you are here and you're watching the stream, guys, please give it a share. Please interact with myself and Jonathan, and uh, let's have as much fun as possible. And please stick around to the end of the show. Uh, Jonathan's going to be giving away some really cool stuff to all of our uh, our audience, essentially, from around the world. Um, so let's get into the meat and the potatoes. So Jonathan, set this one up for us. Where does the story begin? Okay, so the story begins in November of 2012. And what you have is you have a fisherman from uh, Mexico with his buddy. And what they've tried to do is go out for the weekend to catch some fish. They've heard that there's a storm coming, um, but the fish are biting. So on one hand, they can... Uh, they're tempted to get the fish. On the other hand, there's a big storm coming. And this is on the Pacific side of Mexico where the storms are actually quite strong and quite big. And uh, they go out and uh, it works. They get tons of fish. But on the way back, the storm whacks them. And they're in this tiny little boat with a small outboard motor, no GPS, no electronics. And uh, the storm whacks out their motor and they start to drift. So how old were these, were these two men? 
Uh, they were one of they were, That's a very important question because one was young and one was not so young. There was like a 38 year old and a 22 year old. So they, uh, you know, there was one who was extremely exper- There was one who was extremely experienced. You know, 20 years fisherman. Another one was a day fisherman who knew almost nothing about the ocean. So it's kind of an old man, young man. Mm. So, uh, what were the ages? Can can you recount? I think they're like 38 and 22. Okay. So they weren't like 73 and 50. <laughs> no, they were no, there was a middle age and a quite young guy. And how did you come um how did you come to uh, come come across this story as a journalist? Well, um it was uh actually a call from a book agent and she said, "Jonathan, there's probably no way this story is true, but if it is, it's a hell of a book." And I started to look into it and I said, no, it can't be true. Nobody can survive because what the story was is that he drifted from the coast of Mexico, goes past Hawaii to the south, goes past the, you know, uh, a few other islands, the Clipperton Islands, some other islands in the, in the Pacific. And then he ends up uh, just north of, I mean, just east of Australia, whacking into the Marshall Islands. And when he gets off the boat, you see a picture of this kind of roly-poly guy with a beard down to his waist. And people are wondering, you know, this can't be that this man survived 438 days um, under these conditions. But turns out it was true. Well, um, so what happens then? So they get caught up in this in this um, in this uh, kind of fishing trip gone wrong. Uh, they're in a small boat. How big was this boat? The boat's about seven meters long. Okay, and did they have what supplies? Did I suppose they didn't have much with them, right, at the time? Uh, they had a little bit of, well, actually at first they had quite a bit of supplies because they had about a thousand pounds of sharks. These guys are shark fishermen. They go out and shark is actually, uh, it wasn't shark finning, which is this horrendous practice where you slice off the fin. No, this was in shark is eaten like tuna fish in Mexico. It's, uh, it's on all the menus. And so people eat shark, like a lot of people eat tuna. So they had a thousand pounds or a thousand kilos actually of shark. And as the storm picks up, they have to throw all the shark overboard, and then a big wave washes away their their fishing hooks, their fishing rods, and they're left with uh, one knife, one onion, and a bucket. You know, and they've got no safety equipment. the uh, The Mexican government had put a GPS chip on all the little boats, but the Mexican government never actually put up the antenna. So they had the chip, but without the antenna on shore, it was kind of impossible. So that didn't work. And the boats are painted blue and white. So when they send out the rescue helicopters, guess what? It's kind of hard to find a blue and white boat inside a blue and white ocean. No, that's, that doesn't sound good to me. Um, so then w- what happened then? So I did, so I guess, so they had no supplies. They had no power really to speak of. So they're drifting, right? They're just drifting in the uh, Pacific. Very slow. They're drifting about one kilometer an hour, uh, you know, you know, a baby crawling would have passed them. I mean, they were going really slow, okay. and they just go. They're going. Uh, they're going west, 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 and uh, they're just north of the equator. And it's uh, the storm blows them for six or seven days, and it's terrible waves. They almost flip a bunch of times. They're, most of the time, they're just bailing the water out of the bottom with a bucket. The, the younger guy is vomiting the whole time. They, uh, they haven't. They've got nothing to drink. That's obviously. Um, they uh, they can drink a little rainwater, but they're uh, it's a kind of storm that's much more wind than it is rain. So they're they're getting whacked by this wind because in this part of Mexico there's a wind tunnel, 
um, if you look at maps of the West coast of Mexico and, uh, if you're a sailor or a boater, there's all these like danger zones. Don't go, don't go. The winds are just crazy. And that's exactly where they were. So they got spit way out to sea. And when the wind stopped, they were about 200, 300 uh, miles offshore. So these two guys, were they, were they family? How were they nope, related? They only met, they only met that morning. They had played soccer before, uh, but they'd only met that morning. There was, uh, these fishermen are bad boys. A lot of them are, uh, kind of like fugitive types. And, uh, the regular partner, because the, the main fisherman is named Salvador and his regular partner, Ray, uh, had to go to court that day because he had actually uh, kidnapped somebody and he had to, um, like, he had to go talk to the people at the jail and, uh, kind of weird kidnapping he kidnapped the popcorn vendor and uh stole something like three dollars and tied the popcorn vendor to a tree so of all the people to jack up like why would you go after the popcorn vendor i never did understand that but he had had actually robbed the popcorn vendor so he was in trouble and he couldn't he couldn't fish that day so they grabbed this other guy off the beach well you know i agree with you why would you rip off a popcorn merchant (laughs) oh that's funny man so look, okay, so so they're drifting at sea now. How did these guys survive? I mean, because the obvious thing there is well, water. You can't really drink sea uh, sea water, so that's full of salt. You so is your what were the options options there? I mean, was it was it pretty much rainwater? And how much of that did they get? What did those initial uh, few days and weeks look like? Well, at first there was very little rainwater because it, it was windstorm, but not rainy. Um, so what they were able to do is they were able to uh, put their finger underwater and wiggle their finger under the under the boat and small fish would come and they were experienced enough fishermen they could grab it with their hands and so they would let the fish nibble on their fingers like these are like little kind of like sea piranhas i mean it hurts like heck Mm. um but they would nibble at the end of their fingers and they would grab them and then fillet them and uh warm them in the sun and eat these raw fish so they were eating raw fish and you know, he told me that his fingers looked like somebody had taken nail clippers and just, you know, chopped off all the ends of his fingers because he, he was getting so many little bites from the fish. And they were catching sea turtles and they were eating the sea turtles. Wow. That's sick, sick. Um, so um, why, wasn't, why weren't these guys um, kind of discovered? Because, you know, I know the Pacific Ocean is a big place, but they, they were at sea, from what I can understand, for 14 months. That's, that's like over a year without anybody seeing them. Is that normal? Or were they just well, unlucky? What happened, is, what happened is, if you look at this part of the world, there's um, there's almost no commercial sea traffic. There are some shipping lanes, and every once in a while, they would cross through a shipping lane, and they would see cargo ships on the horizon. Uh, they would see lots of airplanes, obviously, far above. But they were kind of in a no-man's land, and tiny little boat, no mast. They had a mirror the size of, you know, uh, you know, about the size of a tennis ball. So they would try and flash with this tiny mirror, which of course did nothing. Um, and they really, uh, they were pretty invisible, you know, blue and white boat, uh, that small in the middle of the ocean, you know, it's nothing. He said, uh, you know, the Alvarez Al- Salvador, he would say to me afterwards when I interviewed him, he said, you know, you ever see like a, a big puddle with a leaf spinning around and around, you know, we were that leaf. Mm. Um, and so, so you mentioned some of the things that they were doing to survive. What what surprised you about the survival 
story or the survivalist nature of these two gentlemen, um, you know, during these like months and months and rolled that rolled over and over and over again without any kind of hope. Um, what surprised you about, um, you know, the story around um, the survivalist potential of the human spirit? And, and like, what surprised you about the story? Did they do anything that surprised you to survive? Anything like that? Yeah, they actually took two totally different tactics and it had a lot to do with confidence in the ocean. Like, I'm, I've been a lot, I've been on the boats a lot in my life sailing, but there's no way I could have survived more than a couple months, I think. I mean, what happened is the older guy, Salvador, he starts to realize that the younger guy is going mad. The younger guy is totally terrified. He's, uh, you know, he's crying, he's scared, he gets seasick. You know, experienced sailors don't get seasick um, in most cases. Um, and so what, he, what the older guy, Salvador, starts to do is he starts to tell stories. And he starts to say, um, hey, hey uh, hold, hold on a second. I'm going to go for a walk and get us some fresh tortillas. And he would walk back and forth on the boat. And they would come back to the younger guy, Exiaquil, and he'd say, hey, I got us some fresh tortillas. Let's sit down and eat. And he would, uh, you know, he would invent all these scenes. And slowly, his, this fantasy world that he invented started to work. The younger guy, Exiaquil, started to feel better. He would sit up. And so there was this real ability to, to create this, uh, this, you know, this artificial world. And they, they, would, they, would, imagine, they, would lay, they would lay at night and stare at the stars. And they would talk about, um, you know, the new car they got. They would imagine they were driving down the beach and that, you know, all the girls were looking at them. And they would, they would, uh, they would, uh, would kind of, uh, they would put themselves, they would take themselves out of the present and project themselves. You know, they, they would be eating raw fish with seaweed and they would imagine that it was like the best, you know, the, the best uh, meal of their lives. And they would drip seawater on it and they would imagine it was some sort of special sauce. And they were, the thing that really was hardest for the Mexicans, and it sounds ridiculous, but they were just dreaming about tortillas. They wanted tortillas, 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 and all they had was like sea fee- seaweed and turtles, you know. <laughs> um, so it's interesting that uh, that during this incredibly, um, you know, stressful, hopeless, powerless experience that they used their imagination to, to really create hope where there was no hope. Yeah, well, and I, I was trying to figure this out because this is the Salvador, the older fisherman, was not a, a man who was educated in schools. He's, he uh, he got kicked out of first grade after repeating it six times. And he what happened is he was a hunter. He loved to hunt. And the problem is he would bring his slingshot to school and he kept on shooting the teachers with his slingshot until finally they kicked him out. So he had no formal schooling, can't read, can't write. But he had a wealth of emotional tools that most of us would consider riches. He was able to take himself out of the moment and just be completely convinced of his own ability to survive. He had this this deep, deep feeling that no matter what, he was going to survive. And one of the things that helped him is that he had been a terrible father. He had kind of abandoned his daughter at 11 months old, and he hadn't seen his daughter in nine years. And as he's sitting there in the boat, he realizes that if he dies – He'll have this debt to his daughter. He'll be. He'll go down in history as a you know second worst dad ever. Mm. So he, you know, he's got this mission, and his mission is to survive so that he can reconcile with his daughter. Sure, I suppose that goes a long way to explaining why. You know, it, it, it comes, I'm sure you would have come across this um, quite a lot, but it's like that saying where he who has a strong enough why can bear almost any how. Have you heard of that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So with them, if you're talking about emotional tools, 
one of those is clearly um, having a strong enough why, and his why was one that was powerful enough to bear the how of surviving. Um, and then, you know, more broadly, then you've got other qualities which immediately jump to mind based on what you've just said and what you just described, which is, which is the quality of grit. It's the quality of perseverance. Um, and these are innately available to, to anyone. So anybody listening to us right now or watching us uh, right now, uh, wherever you might be, keep those questions coming in, guys. Thank you. Um, uh, they all do come to me directly. Um, but uh, when you think about these qualities, they are all innately available to all of us the same. There's not like you've got it more, you've got more grit than me. Do you understand? Uh, grit can be cultivated. It can be activated. It can be, um, you know, mined. It can be used. Uh, but oftentimes, you know, I've discovered, especially in the world of business and entrepreneurship and more broadly now in the kind of um, fields of elite performance, is that um, we don't cultivate grit. We don't really cultivate perseverance. We choose to quit because it's too hard, because we lose our why. We lose our North Star. And these two gentlemen, um, Salvador and Exia Kill, I believe, I think I pronounced that okay. Um, yeah, so these two dudes, they're out there in a hopeless situation, literally surviving, don't know when their next meal is necessarily going to be, you know, going to come from. Um, and they, they had to do these things. And I wanted to kind of had, they had to activate grit. They had to think about why should I survive this when I can just throw myself overboard? Do you know what I mean? Um, and so I wanted to kind of get into that with you. What did you, what did, what have you discovered about, you know, developing these emotional tools as you describe them? Um, how do we, activate this kind of emotional tool set and part of that tool set is grit, perseverance, having a strong enough why maybe a little bit off center there. But how do, what have you learned about activating these kinds of deterministic qualities in, in humans that really do make the difference despite the challenges of the environment that we may be facing? Yeah. Well, because this book uh, was my second book about extreme survival, I started to study it. The, the first book that I wrote was on how the Chilean miners survived when they were trapped underground for, for 10 weeks. So I'd spent a lot of time investigating how it was that these Chilean miners had survived. And now uh, with this, you know, then when I did the book on the fishermen, I talked to a lot of survival psychologists. And one of the key things that they said was uh, a sense of humor is pretty much key to survive. Even in the death camps of the Second World War, in the worst, worst circumstances, people had humor. In solitary confinement, you hear people talking about, you know, telling jokes to the cockroaches and the spiders. If you don't have a sense of humor, it really can kill you. And this was really shown to me by um, a professor of, of survival psychology who studies life, ro life, ro life ro uh, rafts and uh, who survives at sea and who doesn't. And he said that almost always the people who are really serious and have no sense of humor uh, are the first to die. And he, he actually said, you know, in this case, uh, uh, you know, a lack of sense of humor can be fatal. That can actually kill you. And when you look at these guys surviving, Alvarenga had an amazing sense of humor. He would be he'd be half starved to death in the middle of the ocean and he would start talking to the ocean and he would say to the ocean, you know, Oh dear ocean. Thank you for carrying me all these ways. Dear ocean. You know, I never asked you, why don't you just, you know, you must be tired of carrying me. Why don't you just, you know, why don't you just throw me up on a beach or something, you know, Yeah. or, or he would talk to the birds and he would say to the birds, you know, if I were you, I wouldn't be out here. I'd go look for some land, you know, and he'd be making jokes with the lands, with the birds. And he was really able to, um, to keep his spirits up by, by, by looking at the lighter side of it. And he, 
he just had this amazing ability to push, push, push. And when you talked about grit, that really struck something because what I'm finding is that people have 10 times more grit than they realize. You know, you might be at the shopping mall and you might be having a regular little day, but if there's an earthquake and you have to dig through the rubble for 20 hours, you'll do it. You know, hopefully that won't happen, but I think we should try and learn to trick our minds into uh, extreme survival and pulling up this uh, this resilience or this power we have. Obviously, right now with the coronavirus and the lockdowns, and you know, people are realizing that you know they probably don't have the toolkit they want, or they want their toolkit to be more sharpened, or they're you know opening up the toolbox and finding that the tools are not there. But I really think that uh, there's a saying in Italy, you know, uh, our grandparents were asked to go to war; we've been asked to stay home. It's not that bad. And sit on the couch. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I do see some comments coming through. Wam Kelway, I can't pronounce your surname, dude. Makwabene, I think. Makwabene, I think, is the... I do my best. You know what I mean? Uh, my, my surname is pretty simple, Brown. Uh, but he's got a comment here. He says, I think the best thing to happen to these two guys is gratitude, the, homo- the harmoni- harmonious balance between mind, spirit, and body, being thankful for your fate and living through it to begin to live your own life. Gratitude is a living being. It's interesting that he's talking about the idea of fate. Um, I think that's something for me that uh, I would wrestle with quite a bit in that kind of situation. It's like, well, how is this fate? Do you know what I mean? Or maybe it must be fate. And I think if you think about fate more broadly, how does one accept it? Do you understand? Especially when, you're in, when your situation is not one of, be, of sitting on your couch. It's actually one of going to war. It's actually one of, of survival, truly surviving. Not thinking about surviving, but like literally if you don't, you know, do the right things at the right time, you're not going to survive. And so, and so I want to kind of get into this with you, Jonathan, if I may, about the ideas of, uh, of acceptance and surrender and fate. What have you learned about, um, about those qualities um, as it relates to the story of Salvadori and, um, and Exiakil? Well, it's, very, it's a great question. So I'm glad that that was brought up because what we find here is there's two vastly different uh, mindsets going on. The older fisherman, Salvador, is completely convinced that his fate is to survive and go see his daughter and get on with his life. And the younger one, Exequiel, who is um, very religious, has, has been told right before this trip, a woman in his church had a dream. And she said, I dream that you go to sea and you die at sea. And so oh. while, when they're suffering after the first few weeks, Salvador is convinced he's going to make it. He's going to be the he's going to be the survivor. He's actually maybe going to sell his story. He's going to buy a truck with the money. And the other one keeps saying it's God's will. I'm going to die. And they 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 each had a very clear vision of fate, but they were completely different destinies. One was 100% convinced he was going to live, and the other one was convinced that it was God's will that he would die at sea. Um, it's interesting you mentioned the word suffering. Um, that. Um you know, I, I'm very much a big proponent of the idea of suffering. I think we're oftentimes taught to subscribe to the idea of, of the dream rather than the nightmare. And when the dream doesn't right. happen, we wonder why. And it's actually because our expectations are completely embedded in this idea of, of um, that isn't fundamentally true. Life is actually all about suffering. It is. It's financial right. suffering, emotional suffering, um, you know, physical suffering. It's like everywhere you look, there's just suffering. 
right? And so, so for these guys who were basically put into this fateful boat and put into the situation of not knowing whether they're going to survive or not for 14 months. Now, <laughs> you can just imagine like where your mind would go in that context. So for 14 months, you're just suffering day after day and unnecessarily, right? I would say, um, because you didn't feel like it was really your fault. You understand? Like they weren't really at cause. Yeah. They were just yeah. unlucky. They were just yeah. unlucky. And now they're sitting in this situation where they're, where they're, you know, where they're really battling to manage their, their kind of mindset. And one would, would hope that it would have to be positive. And so, so the yes, as you said, they pointed you pointed out that they were being quite humorous and all this kind of thing. But but ultimately, it's fleeting. You know, you can only be humorous some of the time, not all of the time. Other times, you just go into the hurt locker, uh, as I call it, the hurt locker. You know, where you you're just really hurting. Um, and I wanted to kind of um, start or maybe uh, double down on that particular point there um, around suffering. What have you learned about suffering, and what did Salvadorian Exequil uh, reveal to you about? suffering and its relationship to meaning? Well, that's a great question because every, obviously the world is suffering right now. There's, there's a lot of people who are saying, you know, it's great that they get more time with their children, that they're, you know, they're, they're, they're doing 600 push-ups a day. And I, I definitely applaud people who can find uh, the, the, the silver lining here, but there's obviously massive amounts of suffering. And apart from the death, you know, the, the men, I, I, I've always argued that the mental health toll from this uh, is going to be much bigger than the physical health. So when I did this book, one of the first questions I said to Salvador is, why do you want to do a book? You know? mm. And he said, look, I was suffering like nobody's ever suffered. I had nothing to eat. I had nothing to drink for days, sometimes weeks. Uh, I was going uh, physically insane. Mentally, I was out of my mind, he said, because he's hallucinating. He's on the open ocean. And he said, if I don't commit suicide in that circumstance, you shouldn't commit suicide. And so he said, if one person who reads this book decides not to kill themselves, that's enough for me. That His real goal was to provide an anti-suicide message to people saying, you know, he, he said, look, most of you want to kill yourself just because of what's happening up here in your head. And he said, everything that I was suffering in my head and my body, and I made it, you can make it. Which is true, right? It's so weird because don't you find that uh, I don't know what you've, what you've discovered in this space, but like whenever you feel that you're having a tough day, <laughs> okay, there's some, t- there's two guys sitting in a boat somewhere at drifting at sea. Do you know what I mean? Like they're, they're worlds apart. Exactly. You know what I mean? It's worlds apart. So it happens to me all the time because my friends have two kids and they're always complaining about what a pain it is to have two kids. And I, I have seven daughters and so they say every time they suffer with having two kids, they think about me and they feel more relaxed. <laughs> Did you just say you have seven daughters? That's correct. Yeah, not a typo. <laughs> <laughs> how the hell do you have – how did you survive? What have you learned <laughs> about suffering, pal? <laughs> oh, that's raise, hectic. Raise, raise, them, raise them like small. I'm doing a book called Seven Daughters Later, A Guide to Raising Healthy Mammals. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a, that's a great book. I'm definitely into that one. But like going back to this uh, idea of like suffering and the things that we complain about, and I think it's this idea of perspective. You know, It's like when you're stuck inside the bottle, you can't read the label, right? Um, and right. so like, like, you know, uh, so obviously everybody's working from home and I've got like 30 odd staff and what they, what sometimes they complain about is, uh, when the internet drops, 
you know, and they and they can't do things or whatever. Uh, but then the perspective shift here, and by the way, this becomes like a thing. It creates stress. It, be, it creates an environment where we feel that it's almost unattainable. And again, we start to, you know, um, blame everything around us. It's this COVID thing. And so it's a narrative that's, that is quite easy for, for us to latch onto um, as ordinary people. Um, and so what that does then, it creates a situation where we almost absolve ourselves of all perspective and the right perspective because it's not my fault. The whole world's crazy. Yeah. It's not, it's everything outside of me. That's the problem. You know what I'm saying? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to get into that perspective uh, shift. Um, sort of maybe if we can tackle that a little bit practically, how do you, if someone's suffering right now, whether that's, you know, think about small business owners and I've got a, I've got a large audience on LinkedIn. Um, and so if someone's suffering in whichever way and you can pick your own version of that, um, what do we do practically to create perspective shift? I mean, I'll use that example of stuck inside the bottle, can't read the label. You actually want the perspective in order to read the label to understand that maybe it's not as bad as you think. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there. I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Matt Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mattbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. The key, the key very clearly is to have something more important than yourself. It could be, for example, taking care of an, an elderly person. It could be taking care of a baby. It could be volunteering. But when you look at who survives and who doesn't, you know, especially the most dramatic cases, the people who survive are people who have a mission that goes beyond themselves. They're people who wake up in the morning saying, you know, I'm going to make the world a little bit better today. And it could be something shoveling snow. It could be baking bread for your neighbor. It could be a phone call to somebody you haven't talked to in five years. It could be, uh, you know, making yourself a salad. You know, it, it, it could be flying a kite. You know, there's a thousand ways, but you need to, you need to have something outside yourself. And especially if you're helping somebody else, you know, what we find in really extreme survival situations is the doctors and nurses tend to survive because they know that if they die, that uh, it's going to be that much more suffering for that many people. And I, you know, in a lot of ways we're tribal, you know, we, we, we think we're all modern and all, but we're very tribal in a lot of mm -hmm. our, our wiring. And so, you know, if you do something for the group, you know, it tends to be this, this reinforcing loop. I mean, I really believe that altruism uh, is kind of infinite. You know, you do a good act and you have no idea how that good act is going to come back, but it'll probably come back to you 10 times better with 10 times more energy. And that's not the reason you do it, but I really think there's something very exponential about altruism. Otherwise, we wouldn't have made it this far as a species. You know, mm. people 
people think that Lord of the Flies, the story of kids, you know, killing each other on an island is human nature. First of all, that's fiction. And second of all, the reason humans survive is because we are generous. You know, people are willing to jump on the hand grenade for the group. You know, when you look at these acts of bravery, it turns out that most people are very brave. They don't get the chance to uh, test themselves, but it's actually quite common that people give their lives for other people. You know, most of us have been at a beach when somebody's almost drowned. There's any, there's no shortage of people trying to help out. Um, and some, even some people can probably barely swim. So I think it's important to realize that if you have a mission that's bigger than you, if you're able to like look beyond your suffering, you can kind of disembody yourself and involve your energy into some other fight. And it could be this, could be writing a letter to a newspaper. It could be, like I said, shoveling snow, but the worst thing you can do is to get kind of in this loop of your own problems. And if you're alone, it's much more difficult. You know, if you've got, you know, I've got seven kids, there's no, there's no chance I'm going to be alone. So, uh, you know, one of them just crawled behind me to steal God knows what, but probably chocolate or something. <laughs> um, but I think that uh, from all the interviews I've done on extreme survival, it's really, really key to, 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 to connect yourself to something bigger than yourself. And, everybody can think of something that's bigger than themselves. Can they though? I was actually going to ask you, it's, you say that, but I find that sometimes people are, are scared to choose. They're scared to choose to stand for something. They're scared to, or they're fearful of the consequence of, of, um, of sacrifice. And, you know, if you think about COVID-19 and everything that's going on around this world at the, of ours at the moment, it's like I, I put this tweet out the other day. It's like if you, if as a as a humans, right? If you can, if we see an enemy coming over the hill, like in the war, right, like right. you mentioned, right? We like cool. We're gonna go after the Nazi. We'll take him out. You know, we're gonna fight for the good against this uh, threat of evil. Um, and then, but then com- compare compare that situation to, you know, an enemy that you can't see. You can't see COVID. So our behavior isn't one necessarily of uniting. It's actually about doing what's for me uh, because if I don't do this, um, you know, I won't survive or I won't have the comforts that I, um, that, that I need for my life. You know, it's, remember the, the panic buying around this and the toilet paper story is a small example, right? Right. But, 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 we, but as humans, to your point, there's the yin and the yang, right? The yin is like, well, no, it's contribution and finding a, 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 um, you know, something that's bigger than you. Um, but then the yang is, well, what would it cost me if I did that? Do you know what I mean? Like it's, it's the example of why should I become a social entrepreneur? Well, if I'm an entrepreneur, and right now I care about surviving, right, as a small business. I'm using this as an analogy, um, not necessarily for digital kung fu, but I'm saying, right, that, right, right. I'm saying that, you know, if I'm in a survival mindset, I'm not in the mindset of contribution. And, bec- and that's because I'm, in, I'm either cash flow strapped, I've got, like, I've got pressures from, my, from all sorts of areas, from outside of my business, but also the inside, the inner game, the stuff we're talking about. Um, and so I've got all these pressures, and so I'm not really in a position to contribute. I'm not in the mindsets of contribution. Doesn't make sense. So I wanted to yeah. kind of get into that. How do we break that pattern? Because it is a pattern. Everything, you know, we're creatures of habit. It is a pattern of thought ultimately. How do we break through that pattern and actually choose, um, you know, something that truly is greater than ourselves? 
One thing that's actually interesting is to uh, read about other people who've been in crazy situations or, or you know, extreme survival. I think that, uh, you know, people, people are, you know, watching TV, they're reading, there's a lot of, there's a lot of kind of media being absorbed right now. And I think one of the worst things you, I think people can do is to like watch mainstream news or just spend too much time on the bad. This is for me a moment, a moment to, to, to look, to look beyond that, you know, whether it's, if you like to read, read. You like podcasts, podcasts, movies. But I would say the, the, the you have you have to get out of the break the loop. It's like it's like an addiction. Like bad news is an addiction. Like, and I'm a I'm a journalist. I'm addicted to bad news. You know. But um, I made a decision about ten years ago to start writing positive stories. You know how you know survival of the Chilean miners, survivor of these fishermen. Because I think that you can change the narrative around you. You know, if you're, if you're on a farm and you're just, you know, you're just uh, working with animals all the time, you've got, you're an expert on animals, but you know nothing about airplanes, you know, like, I think that you need to uh, surround yourself with, with, with positive reinforcement. And I think part of the positive reinforcement you can surround yourself with is, is people who've been in terrible situations and got out of it. And I think that it's like you said, get out of the bottle. You've got to give yourself distance and, it, there's a million pressures on people right now, as you said, financial, uh, you know, emotional. But uh, one of the things that's interesting, and in, you know, there's a saying. Uh, I grew up in Boston, and my grandparents used to always say, you know, uh, idle hands are the devil's workshop. Mm. And they would always give kids little things, like even when my grandparents were reading stories to us. We always had something in our hands, and it was very interesting. It could be a deck of cards, it could be a pile of marbles or something. But the idea, what you know, knitting, whatever. But this idea that uh, there's a really strong connection in mammals between like hand movement and sanity. Like you know, that's why they sell these stupid finger spinners and all this crap for kids, because actually kids need, you know, a kid actually does need to do something with their hands. So I would say manual manual work is really really key because we see on the on the fisher the fishermen. They're out in the middle of the ocean, but they were doing stuff with their hands all day long. They took apart the outboard motor and they 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 made they made tools. They were whittling things. They would catch sharks, and with the shark skin, they would make uh, slippers, and then they would sew the slippers using the the fish vertebrae. They would um, they would make hats out of the garbage they found. They would. Uh, they would invent a million different ways to keep themselves entertained. They used the bones of the birds to, to, uh, to, to do drumsticks and do music. These guys were always creating, but I would say, keep your hands busy. There's this old saying of, you know, idle hands are a devil's workshop mm. is super important for children. But I even think, you know, there's a reason why people are knitting and baking and, you know, kneading dough right now. It's there's, there's some very, very basic mammalian, uh, circuit that says moving hands eases the brain. Um, I I love that. Um, I will definitely tweet that out. Because um, yeah, I mean, my kids are a nightmare when they don't uh, actually get busy with their with these two things. You know, um, no, make no, make make pizza. It doesn't matter if you can eat it or not when it's done. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So I got some uh, questions coming in here. This one's from uh, Jessica. She says, "Hi, Matt, uh, Jonathan. I saw that this book was named." Best survival book of the decade. Is this going to turn into a motion picture? Is it? Aha. That is the. Yeah, yes. It, we were pretty advanced on the motion picture. Uh, it was supposed to be shot sometime this year. That means probably sometime next year. But it's. Uh, you know, we've got the script down. We've got the actors lined up. So, yeah, you should expect to see this as a movie sometime in the next probably year and a half for sure. 
Cool. Who's who's doing it? Warner Brothers. I can't talk about it yet. Or it's just uh, I don't want to jinx it. But yeah, you'll 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 it will, we have no idea what it'll be called. But it's a uh, um, you know I, I get I get movie offers pretty much every week. People are writing saying we want to do it. We want to do it. Have you been on your Amazon page recently? What's that? Your Amazon page. Have you been on there? No, why? Is that a picture of me and a kid or something? <laughs> no. Uh, you've had 679 five-star ratings on this book. So I'm not surprised that it's um, probably going to become a movie. I love these kind of things. Um, there's another question here from uh, Simon. He says, hey, Jonathan, I've read this book. Would you say that Salvador is uh, hu- what is this? humanity? Humility and optimism is what helped him survive at sea. Totally. Yeah, he was, he was, he was a very, very generous man. I think generosity is pretty key. You know, he would, he would, he was the kind of guy who would go out fishing and he would bring back fish and he would give away fish to some of the poorer families in town. He was a guy who didn't make a whole lot of money as a fisherman, but he paid bus tickets for his friends to go visit their, their sick children. He was just a very generous guy and it was definitely hand to mouth um, or hook to mouth in this case. But uh, he, uh, he was extremely generous and he was very humble. Like he didn't think he was the king of the hill or anything. And even to this day, you know, he, he's, he's not even totally aware of how it is that he survived. How's it guys? Just a quick one to say, did you know that due to COVID-19, that the small business sector in South Africa is currently at risk with close to 525,000 formal SMEs locally, employing 6.6 million people. These businesses are at greater risk today than ever before. You know, as a community, we need to do as much as we can to help SMEs succeed and survive during this time. And to this end, I've decided to give away free copies of my number one Amazon best-selling book, You're in the Game Today, which shares the 12 principles that high-impact entrepreneurs, billionaires, and world champion athletes use to overcome the impossible and achieve the extraordinary. If you'd like to get your hands on a copy or maybe share a copy with an entrepreneur that you feel could benefit from this incredible story, please head on over to mattbrownshow.com Hit the Your Inner Game link, put in your details, and we'll deliver a digital copy to you instantly. And for more information, guys, about the book and more developments around the Matt Brown Show, head on over to mattbrownshow.com. Let's get into our segment, Quote of the Day. Uh, So, Jonathan, I wanted to um basically find out from you do you have an inspiring quote that comes from the story or potentially from somewhere else uh what would you prefer from the story or something else hey man you're the guest you're the talent i'm just the interviewer what do i know Uh, (laughs) the the quote i always love is my father my father used to my father tom used to hold up a wine glass and he would say it doesn't matter if the wine glass is half empty it's not whether it's half full you should just say what a beautiful glass (laughs) <laughs> uh, okay then i'm gonna have to ask you now because you did ask me what is there an inspiring quote that in the from the story itself these two gentlemen yeah i think i think the most inspiring thing from them is this uh, this quote from alvarenga saying you know if i can make it you can make it i had the most crazy mental problems i had the most crazy physical problems and if i didn't commit suicide neither should you hmm that's nuts, eh? 
That is crazy. Because um, I guess you mentioned the term survival psychology. It's interesting because I think we, 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 are, we, we immediately go there. Uh, and I know it's innate in us, like fight or flight, right? The, the ability to survive. But I think now we're in a situation where it's less about surviving and actually the precursor to surviving now is actually about adaptability. And when you think about survival and survival instinct, it's amazing how humans can adapt and come up with solutions if their life actually does depend on it. You know what I mean? Um, and I wanted to kind of get into this, like how are we capable to do, how are we capable to do things we couldn't even imagine before? And if you think about that as the premise, what have you learned from the story and obviously your other book around the Chilean miners about this ability to truly overcome? What does it come down to? Is there a secret? Yeah, there's, yeah, there's a couple of secrets. And I think, uh, you know, first of all, I'd, I'd say that in a lot of ways, modern life has made us kind of a stupid mammals. You know, I think most of us don't have a particularly dis- uh, developed sense of smell. Um, we're very, we're very like, kind of, I think the age, we're in the age of like the, the tyranny of vision, like of all our senses, we use vision for everything. You know, uh, we, we would all, you know, we don't listen as well as we probably could if, if, if any of us were to blindfold ourselves for a week, we would probably be amazed at how our hearing picks up when actually it's just, you know, it's like an instrument we don't use. So I think that we have all these tools innately, but that we've been dumbed down uh, by, by, by a culture that doesn't appreciate our, you know, our, our amazing abilities to adapt. So I, I think that from, from, from looking at these books and these, in these different survivals, I think that it's, we've, we've just got, 10 times more power and it's not about resilience because resilience is kind of an overused word about just trying and trying and what we're all going through right now is kind of a post-traumatic stress syndrome you know we've got or we're still not even post it's still traumatic stress syndrome and the post is yet to come but the important the important thing here is to realize that you're not going back to the life you had before you're going mm-hmm. back to a different life and so wanting to go back to the life you had or we all had that's not that's that's like wishing that your 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 dead dog would uh, come out of the grave it ain't gonna happen no matter how much you wish and just thinking about the dead dog ain't gonna help you so i think that it's really important for people to realize that don't don't try and go back to your old life it's gone and it's gonna be gone for probably a year maybe more so you have to you have to kind of look in the mirror and say it's a new me it's a new moment well, the thing, I, I, I was actually talking to my wife about this the other day. I, I actually think that what a lot of us are experiencing is grief. Like, I agree with you that I don't think it's going to go back to normal for some time. Let's say, yeah, if you're lucky, maybe two. And even then, for something like this, a pandemic, which is the first, obviously, as you know, it's the first time we've experienced something like this in 100 years. We still don't know what the cultural ramifications are going to be about exactly. this. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? And, and who knows what uh, systems and things that will come uh, as a result of this disruption, and I use that word de- deliberately, um, you know, in, in social culture, in the world of business, you know, the, the startups that we're going to see, the acceleration of funding into health tech as an example, um, you know, right. it's, it's the new normal. And now I'm just losing, and that's just what we know, and that's just like a, a, a guesstimate, right, about what the opportunities are going to be for entrepreneurs, for business leaders, for corporates. You know, think about, you know, we, I mentioned the word culture, and I'm talking about culture in general. But then what about right. the, the culture and the philosophies of businesses? 
Do you know what I mean? Like the we we always used to talk about this right. idea of purpose-led businesses or purpose-led led brands, and we almost paid it lip service. It was like, well, we've got to put ten percent of our profits into this thing. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't really front and right. front and center, but now, given where we are, it's not an it's not a nice to have anymore. It's a requirement. It's almost like if you want to, as a CEO myself, if I wanted to attract talent in five years' time, what do I need to put in place today in order to do that? Understanding that the whole mindset of culture, business, and otherwise has shifted towards, um, I would suggest now, and again, question marks around this, but I would suggest that you mentioned about a cause greater than yourself, right? But now that's not that's going to become the, the status quo, the new status quo, I think we're going to see an acceleration of um, activities and and businesses and initiatives in the space. W- what do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I mean, Chile has a kind of right wing president uh, for about uh, a year and a half now, and even before this, Chile had uh, had a big social uprising that probably most of your viewers have heard about, where there was uh, lots of protests for more social justice and. Uh, there was a billionaire businessman who was kind of right wing. And I was calling him the accidental socialist because Mm -hmm. this guy was like, you know, prayed at the church of the free market every morning. But because of the the social uprising in Chile, he had to do things like minimum wage. He had to do more workers' rights. He had to do more healthcare spending. And I, I was calling him the accidental socialist. And in certain ways, I think that's what we're seeing now is that, uh, the, uh, We've been kind of faced with a situation that I call criminal capitalism, where you've got, you know, kind of cronies taking out, you know, sticking their hands in the bucket and stealing the money all around the world and big corporations kind of abusing us. And it'd be very interesting to see what kind of backlash there is, um, because you mentioned like the new normal. I think it's I would actually call it the new abnormal. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, we're like a seven billion person Petri dish right now. And this is going to be studied for decades this is like this is pretty much the weirdest social experiment on earth you know it's what we're going through now has so many layers that we'll probably never figure it out but i think that you're right and that there's going to be a huge clamor for uh for more uh for more kind of collaborative thinking um i think we're going to see it with whatever kind of vaccine or treatments come up for the corona is going to be record time uh, but on the other hand, you're also going to see a massive concentration of power. You know, a lot of little companies are going to go under. Big corporations are going to be pouring, you know, sweeping in and getting more and more. So there's a real kind of authoritarian uh, strike that can come in. You know, it's always easy to blame somebody else, the other, whether the other is a foreigner or a different skin color or different gender. So there's going to be a lot of blame. And when people get stressed, they want to blame something or somebody. So this is a real important moment, I think, to exactly promote and to explain that what you're talking about a more collaborative uh, outlook because that's the only way people are going to survive. We're, ar- we're already like heavily populated planet. We, we pretty much destroyed half the ecosystems on the planet. So there's not a whole lot of time to, to, to not be collaborative, but I agree mm-hmm. with you. I think that, I think that the world will be a better place from this. I, I was saying from the beginning that I thought Corona was terrible for humanity, but good for democracy. <laughs> Yep. Uh, well, capitalism is what we do for those we don't know. So, you know, but I mean, going. I just want to circle back. You said sure, you, sure. you said that we have ten times more power than we think, and you know, I, I keep hearing this. It's like 
you know, we 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 have we are able to do more and overcome more than we have ever imagined. Um, and you know, or I'm not using those. You know, I'm using those words to paraphrase uh, a lot of right. that sentiment. You know, it's like if you believe, you can achieve. You know, Carnegie and all this kind of stuff. And it talks to this idea of of motivation, you know. And going back to these two dudes in the, in the Salvador and Exequiel in in these in this boat, fourteen months drifting at sea, crazy, crazy. But um, you know, motivation in the context of suffering and hopelessness and or uncertainty. To your point around COVID, because you know the only certainty now is going to be uncertainty. And you know, I think we were always in an uncertain space. And if anything, it's accelerated this idea of uncertainty. So when you're uncertain about anything, you you have doubt and doubt always precedes fear. And so right. when you're fearful, you don't take action or you take you don't take sufficient action. You you know what I'm saying? So so one needs to recognize right. to your point about this idea of having more power, more capability than you than you think, but what you don't do is you don't believe it. You don't believe that you can overcome this uh, this COVID nineteen situation as a retail business right. in right. a small retail business supplying Edcon. Do you understand? Um, and I'm using that as an example, which may not may or may not be contestable or not. But the point stands true in that you are ultimately in charge of your destiny, despite uh, you know the role of fate in the context that you currently live within. Like these two dudes, we spoke about fate earlier on. Was it fate? Was it not fate? How would you accept it? How, accept the idea of, of being lost at sea for such a, a long period of time? Um, how would you surrender to it? And, and so on and so forth. So, so if you're going back to this idea of potential, when, when someone once said to me, you know, success can only be measured to the degree of your full potential actualized or realized. Um, and so we never really know. Do you know what I'm saying? And so we don't take action because we're uncertain. We don't believe enough. We don't believe that we are worthy or whatever the, the situation is for you. Um, and so I wanted to kind of ask you, like, how do we truly become self-aware in this context of our potential to build the things that matter post-COVID or to more simply put, just achieve and build the things that matter to us and the people and our customers and the communities that we serve? I would say to, to avoid being alone. I think that it's very easy, especially in you know a social distancing environment where we are literally alone in certain ways, but it's really important to find a community and the community could be, it could be uh, virtual. It could be, you know, it could be over telephone, but it could, uh, it could be, but a collective project is a way, you know, it's, it's, old, you know, one plus one plus one is 10. You know, you, if you find like-minded people, you know, you, you might not be able to do a community garden by yourself, but with three people, you can, you might not be able to design, um, you know, an, a water filter that you've always dreamt about, but online you could probably find somebody who can help you like get, uh, definitely reach out and, um, you know, one of the things I most like about sports is that you learn how to lose and you get up and you play again and you lose, and you get up and you play again and you lose. So like, you know, I think this fear of failure is a big deal. So I think, you know, uh, th this idea that we're alone is terrible. We are in many ways more alone than ever. So I think really trying to find some sort of community, whether it's two people, whether it's uh, 20 people, it doesn't matter. But pretty much the most terrifying thing is to be alone right now, I'd say. Well, we're forced into self-isolation, right? And that's the hard part because I think the other thing I was talking to a friend about um, earlier this week, I was saying that be, you know, people are freaking out here in South Africa because they can't buy alcohol. 
<laughs> like like there's a ban you know um and obviously there's uh, you know <laughs> the 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 kind of you know the what's that term when they banned alcohol in the states the rum runners like the rum, the equivalent yeah. of the old run, the modern day rum runners here in Africa. <laughs> but, but, but the moonshine, the moonshine is, yeah, exactly right. So, so you get it, right? So, but, you know, but the thing is, it's like people can't be like, and they're freaking out about it. Why? What's such a big deal about getting hammered? What's such a big deal about escaping? Do you know what I mean? And, and, the, and I think what people are being forced to do now in an isolated environment is reconcile themselves with themselves. You know, exactly. That's now that is something you don't get forced on. You know what I'm saying? Like people go to therapists and this kind of stuff. But now we have to do it all the time. We're forced to come to terms with the with the realities of addiction, of self isolation, of uncertainty, of anxiety, and all these kind of things. And so everything's accelerated. Everything's compounded. Um, and so what I've learned, and I don't know what what um, what you've experienced and discovered covering this Chilean miner story, and now these two gentlemen uh, lost at sea, et cetera. Um, but, uh, you know, in that context, that I've, as I've described, I've learned that gratuity and appreciation are the values that oftentimes break the cycle of dealing with one's psychodrama, which, by the way, is also an addiction in and of itself. Addiction yeah, to yeah, drama. Among the <laughs> well, with seven daughters, I'm not surprised. <laughs> um, so, um, did these two, Salvador and Ezequiel, when they were lost at sea, what were they doing around gratuity? How would they? Or how were they even possible to be grateful for a situation like that? Fourteen months, four hundred and thirty-eight days lost at sea. Well, um, they were they were grateful. Uh, they were grateful when they ate. You know, they, they, they would, it was interesting. They would say that. Uh, they would say when, when you're half starving to death, people assume that when you get food, like let's say you haven't eaten for two or three days and you catch a fish, people assume that you uh, you tear into the fish and you know and eat it like an animal. And they said, no, 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 no. What you do is you slice it in tiny little pieces, almost as if it was some fine sushi, and you eat it. You know, you savor every bite. They would talk about having one bite of food in their in their uh, mouth for ten minutes. The Chilean miners as well. The Chilean miners. Uh, pretty much starved to, you know, just about to death for 17 days. They only had one or two spoonfuls of food a day, and they turned that into a feast. Hmm. That's nuts, eh? That's nuts. Um, you mentioned earlier um, altruism is infinite. Exponential. Exponential. Okay, that's better. I was going to say infinite is probably contestable. <laughs> um, just very quickly, can you add to that? What do you what exactly well, do you mean by altruism is exponential? A good a good deed a good deed spreads and spreads and spreads. You know, you could be it's I've seen it so many times in my life that you you open the door for you open the door for you open the door for somebody and somewhere down your life that door open, ten doors open. And that's exactly not the reason why you do it. You know, you're not you don't I don't think being generous is some sort of uh, you know quid per quo, but I think that the idea that if you're generous, if you're altruistic, life is very, very generous to you back. And it's, there's some sort of, there's some sort of, there's some sort of rule, I think that, you know, human, human, humans survive because we were small little tribes. And 
you know, every little human running off trying to get his or hers wouldn't have worked very well. And so when they talk about the soldier who falls on the hand grenade and dies so that the group doesn't, that's exactly the rule. It's not the exception to the rule. People think that that's one in a million, these brave acts. That's not at all true. That happens all the time. People are extremely generous and people, are, we're seeing we're seeing that all the time around the world now, people sewing masks or people taking care of the children of healthcare providers or people uh, babysitting for, for neighbors or visiting, uh, you know, elderly they don't know. So I think that it's really, there's something, there's something in us that when we do the right thing or when we're generous, we're altruistic, it pays us back on levels we have no idea. And we shouldn't even ask because that's kind of the wrong question. But mm -hmm. there is, I'm very, very convinced, and I definitely live my life that way, that if you just, you know, it's that kind of, it's a very cliche, but, you know, the more you, the more you give away, the more you have. Yeah, it is. What's the other one? Uh, you only get to keep what you give away. Yeah, exactly. So I think, and and um, I'm, I try and be pretty much anti-cliche, but in this case, you know, being gener being generous will give you more. Mm, yeah, well, that's why we do the show. It's all about giving back to you. <laughs> uh, so I wanted to kind of detour over to um, this article I found here, which I thought might be interesting. It became, what became of the Chilean miners? five years on um, and uh, it's about 2016 I think your story when did that start what year which which the uh, four which three eight, the four three eight days when did that, that was start? that they, they, it was 2012 it was yeah, November okay, so of 2012 yeah. when they went out and they came back in okay. uh, January of 2014 but an important part of the story is uh, Exegel dies on the way oh shit gets really poisoned. gets poisoned poisoned by what? What happens is they're having a celebration. They're having like, they can't quite figure out the dates because they have no calendar, of course, and no watch, but they're pretty good with the moon. So they figure that it's probably Christmas time because they, they're, they're, they're on the side of the boat. They scratch a little mark for each month and they know that it's around Christmas. So they decide to have two birds each because at that point they're catching seabirds and eating seabirds as well. And so they fillet two little seabirds and they're eating them and Exekel starts to foam from the mouth and vomit and they can't figure out what's going on. He's basically screaming and, and, uh, and uh, in deep pain and they slice open the stomach of one of the birds and they find a poisonous snake. Oh, no, and the, so the bird had caught the, the, the snake and then he ate the poison flesh and got extremely sick and it didn't kill him. But what it did is it put a, it put a seed in his mind that did kill him. He actually died from uh, from fright because after that, he was always afraid to eat. Every time they had a meal, he was certain that it was going to be the end of him, that he was going to die. So Salvador would eat first, you know, like they do with a king when the, the food tester, you know, so Salvador would eat for a couple hours before. And he would say, look, I'm alive. There's no poison here. You can make it too. And it didn't work. Slowly but slowly, Exekel starved to death, and at the end, Salvador was feeding him like a baby, just little pieces of food, bit by bit, into his mouth. And finally, Exekel dies, and Salvador doesn't know what to do because he doesn't want to be alone. So he decides to pretend that Exekel is still alive. So he sits him up and he talks to him, and he has these long conversations with the corpse. And over the course of a week, the corpse dries out because they're in about they're in very hot weather there. And the corpse dries out, but he's, he'll hug him. He'll say hello in the morning. He'll have these long conversations where he'll ask Exekel, what's death like? 
and he'll pretend or he'll imagine that Exiakel answers back, death is beautiful, come visit me, You'll, you should be here with me. And they have these extended back and forth conversations. And after about a week, Salvador kind of wakes up and says, holy, this is out of control. I'm talking to a corpse. So he does a little ceremony and he strips off the clothes because it might be useful. And he dumps the body into the ocean. Jeez. That's nuts, man. And then, uh, so how many months into the journey did that happen when Exit killed? Probably three. It was pretty early. So we, well, we have the two of them together for about three months. And then for 11 more months, Salvador is completely alone. So what does that mean? Like, what, how did he describe that, that isolation? Um, terrifying. So what he did is he... Uh, he, he did exactly what we've been talking about. He found somebody to take care of. He captured one of the birds that had flown out to this island and he turned it into his pet. And he learned, uh, he was good at whistling. So he learned to whistle the little, uh, the tunes that the bird would, uh, would sing. And he kept this bird for months next to him as a pet. And he would feed it the fish and he would feed it the, uh, you know, the little pieces of food that he found. But at a certain point he runs out of food and he has to wait one day, and he says, you know, if a fish comes, you're going to be okay. And it was Pancho. He nicknamed his pet Pancho. And after about four days of no food, he actually broke the neck and ate his pet. <laughs> oh, my God. The things that we do to survive. <laughs> he said it was the absolute, absolute, the absolute low point of the whole trip was having to eat his pet. I oh know, jeez, that, that'll stick with you. And so, where is where is Salvo? That was actually a question that came in uh, on the studio line. Let me try and get this thing here. Um, oh, it's from a chick called Toomey. She says, "Where is Salvador now? Where is he?" He's, now? Uh, back, in El, he's back in El Salvador. He's uh, he's doing pretty well. He's got tons of friends. He's uh, um, back with his daughter. And uh, does not like the ocean as much. Does not go fishing very much. So he's a little bit kind of out of luck because his, you know, his specialty is he's a fantastic hunter and fisherman. But he, uh, he's, you know, he's he's got cer certain phobias about water. I remember when we first started hanging out and doing interviews, even the sound of the shower would would scare him, or even looking at the ocean would scare him. He got over that, and it would take some small trips and boats, and but. This is a guy who had no problem going 100, 200 kilometers out. No way, not anymore. Mm. So um, this article here, this is, these are all the comments that are coming through, if you can see them on my screen. Uh, but um, this article here about what became of the Chilean miners, I know we touched on uh, what happened to Exegil, etc. When you think about these stories of survival, um, what is the message? What do you think these events, if you think about the probability of this stuff happening. I know the Chilean mining thing is probably a little bit more frequent, you know, mines collapsing and stuff like that. But, but right. certainly you could, you could make the argument that the probability of the Chilean miners surviving was very low. The probability oh, of, zero. you know, Exe zero, yeah. exactly. And Exequiel and uh, Salvadori, you know, the probability of them surviving was very low. And when you hear these stories, I mean, there's so many of them that I've covered on the show, and I never get tired of them. But when you hear these stories, what it's like you like wonder, like you think about it, and you're like, holy, like why, like uh, why did this happen? What's then? And then the question for me that I have to you is like, what is the message for this? You know, if you think about the idea of 
you know, a design purpose behind everything. There's a design behind everything. What do you think the message is of a design like this, of these survival stories? I think it goes back to to what we were talking earlier, Matt, that we really, we have a much stronger emotional and uh, psychological toolkit than we actually realize. And when there's crises, um, some of us have our arrows sharpened and ready to go, and a lot of us don't. So I think that it's uh, it's really important to to not give up to understand that you, that even if you don't know where those tools are, you you have the strength in you. And you know, fortunately, most of us don't get trapped in a mine or stuck at sea. But if we did, a lot of us would survive. People always say, "I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that." And then when you hear stories of a burning fire and people running in and saving somebody from a burning fire or mm. swimming to rescue somebody at a beach, you know. The, we we have a lot more generosity, I believe, in us than than uh, you know, our current culture acknowledges. You know, we've obviously have gone from like communal, like tribal living to everybody in their cubicle, everybody in their car, everybody with their wallet and their credit card, and screw the rest of you. Um, so that that that, but that's a pretty pretty brief uh, you know segment of the human existence. So I think it's really important to realize that that's a construct. That's a construct that's been laid on us for all sorts of reasons, some good and some bad. But this idea of, you know, individual survival is really being shown today to be completely hollow. You know, you could be Richard Branson and you're still screwed. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's no hope for that guy. (laughs) Uh, Cool. Let's get into uh, quotes well, not quotes, we don't quotes, haven't we? Uh, it's rather gifts from uh, the Map Round show. Uh, so we're going to give away some cool stuff today. Uh, Jonathan, why don't you take this one away? What um, What are you going to offer our audience? Okay, so I'm going to offer three signed copies of my book, uh, 438 Days. The delivery time will be rather slow, thanks to whatever is left of postal services and DHL and FedEx. So if you win, no complaining that you might not get the book till July. Um, Unfortunately, we probably still have a lot of confinement time to read in July. But the idea is the three most uh, inspired, um, you know, answers or responses to Matt, um, he gets to choose. The three most inspired are going to get signed copies of this. And you can, have, you can have it signed to you. You can have it signed to your grandmother, your wife, your lover, your kid, whatever. But the idea is, you know, send, send an inspiring message to Matt. And Matt's going to choose three and let you know. And then I'll be in touch with you by email to figure out where we ship it and how we sign it and, all the, and how we inscribe it. Cool, guys. And you can do that. Um, you can actually get in touch with me at hello at mattbrownshow.com. Um, or you can tweet me at mapbrownza. Uh, Jonathan, uh, last question for you, and then we'll wrap this uh, wrap this up. Um, I got people saying I want to sign copy. <laughs> uh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah exactly. <laughs> okay, just pipe down. Um, so, uh, last question for you: Why do you do what you do? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Well, a couple reasons. First of all, we got seven kids you don't get yourself out of the bed in the morning. They, you know, you've got little kids like pulling your eyes. And saying, Come on, pancakes. Sorry, that, that was a, that was a dumb question. Now in hindsight, no, no, but what gets me out is a, no, but what gets me in a, in a real answer is what gets me out is I used to cover the narco wars for a lot of the nineties and the early two thousands. I covered the narco wars in South America where I live. And it was extremely exciting 
and kind of vacuous. You know, I would go in helicopters and I would spend about half my time with the narcos who were talking crap about the cops and about half my time with the commandos who were talking crap about the narcos. And it was very exciting and pretty lucrative, but it was totally meaningless. Like there's no good guys. It's all bad guys. The drug war is the biggest scam ever. There's a, there's a great bumper sticker in the United States that says CIA. What it was to a CIA cocaine importing agency? <laughs> and the other one was, you know, why is the price of cocaine so high? And it was the CIA doesn't like competition. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there was all the, the, the I did, you know, the, the, the drug war is just so corrupt. It was just useless. And I was risking my lives for some pretty stupid stuff. So when I did the story on the Chilean miners, and I realized that, you know, you can actually, uh, you know, motivate people with good news and a positive story. I decided to do something that I could, you know, actually explain to my kid, you know, no, I'm not jumping out of helicopters, blowing up coke labs. I'm, uh, you know, writing about fishermen and miners. And it was a bit of debt to my children and a bit of debt to myself that, you know, if I have the ability to communicate and write, like, I want to do something positive. And I was saying to my daughter, I was saying, you know, the idea of life, is, you know, before you die, is to leave the world a little bit better. And she looked up at me and she says, but why only a little bit? <laughs> mm, exactly right. You got, an, you got Yes, you know, kids really do keep you honest, eh? They really do. Yeah. So I've got uh, Craig Blineau on LinkedIn. I will be, um, you, you have yourself your book. He's like, me, me, me. I'm very inspired. Uh, so I've got, I think we've got our three. Um, but hey, send an inspiring message uh, on this this here interview anywhere on the interwebs. Uh, we'll pick it up. And then, yeah, who, get, who, who knows? Maybe we'll give away six. So keep those... Uh, Keep those uh, quotes and comments and things coming in. So um, let's wrap this up. Um, Jonathan, what a privilege, man. Great to, great to tell your story and uh, great to have you on the show. It's been, uh, it's been an awesome experience. Thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. And one last little tip for people is that the audio version of the book is kind of interesting in that um, the book is written in a way that it's supposed to be a story told aloud. And um, I've written a few books and this is the first time i ever wrote a book where we sold twice as many copies of the audio version as the print version so if people want to give a present um you know because we've got a lot of time to listen right now and if there's people who are depressed or people you know who are could use like a um you know a, a solid message the audio version of 438 which you can get on amazon anywhere is interesting because it's proving to be um you know, a, a big lift up. I'm getting a lot of really nice letters from people saying that during Corona, listening to the audio version mm-hmm. is, a, is a big pickup. Cool. So that's 438 Days, an extraordinary true story of survival at sea on Amazon, Kindle, hardcover, paperback, and on Audible. That concludes this show, guys. Thanks so much for all of you on uh, the live stream. We'll catch you again soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening to the Matt Brown Show, guys. Don't forget, you can catch me on all social media platforms for the latest updates, news, and a show history. So if you've been catching this on the podcast, please head on over to our YouTube channel and pound that subscribe button. It would be great to catch the video version there. And if you want a free copy of my number one Amazon best-selling book, your inner game for free right now today. You can grab that on mattbrownshow.com forward slash ebook.
Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an X.com.